Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Charles Slack, the author of Liberty's First Crisis. Charles Slack, author of Liberty's First Crisis, Adams, Jefferson, and the Misfits Who Saved Free Speech. You have a lot of characters in this book. Uh, who's your favorite? I think uh, the, the uh, misfits in the subtitle are my favorites. That's really where my heart lies because I think that, that uh, free speech is always tested by people who don't quite fit into our society. And uh, I think uh, some of these characters... Uh, there, uh, one sort of sticks in your heart a little bit. He was a guy named Luther Baldwin, who was just an ordinary citizen who uh, had a little bit too much to drink one day and made an offhand comment about uh, President John Adams uh, as Adams was passing through in his carriage in Newark, New Jersey. And he was later arrested and charged with sedition for making this offhand comment. And it really sort of went to the crux of why we need to protect uh, even outlandish speech by misfits. Uh, these are the people that I loved exploring in this book. Well, can you set the stage? Like why would uh, uh, a drunk who made a comment about the president have been arrested at a time like that? Well, in 1798, uh, the United States government was uh, embroiled in in controversies domestic and, and foreign, uh, the sort of ideal conception of the United States as a, as a unified nation with unified purpose. The original idea of the founders, uh, George Washington and others, was that we would elect uh, our, our leaders, we would have it out at the polling places and elect leaders who would represent all of the people. And before you knew it, we were dividing into factions and people were disagreeing. We take that for granted now, but it was sort of like the fall from paradise for, for this first generation. And uh, uh, they were sort of divided into two camps about did you support England or did you support France uh, as the two looming superpowers of the day. And the Federalists who controlled the government, they controlled the John Adams presidency and uh, they, they held power in Congress, controlled the Supreme Court. They sort of equated what they believed with uh, the right way of thinking. And so when this other party, the Democratic Republicans, uh, in, I call them the Republicans in my book just uh, for, for shorthand, but um, when, when they were criticizing the Federalists. The Federalists got tired of it. They said, we can't govern. You're, you're, uh, you're uh, pushing us to the, to the verge of war. We need to do something about this. So they passed a law in 1798 called the Sedition Act, where they essentially 
made it illegal to criticize the government. And uh, it, it imposed uh, fines of uh, up to two years in prison and $2,000, which was an enormous amount of money at that time, for people who would be uh, found guilty of criticizing elected officials. And uh, what we see in the, in the course of the book and what we saw in history was how quickly a law like that can devolve and reach its icy fingers down into the population, which is why I say this, this uh, poor guy on the street corner making a dumb joke of uh, being thrown in jail is, is I think, one of the most, uh, one of the essential stories. Now, what did it mean at the time to be a, a Federalist? What did it mean to be a Republican? And did, oh, did they call themselves the Democratic Republicans? They, they, they really, the, the idea of parties had not formed yet. I think we're so used to the idea of Democrats and Republicans in modern day that we sort of assume that parties must be written into the Constitution. And in fact, the, the, the very word party was sort of ex, uh, interchangeable with faction, uh, special interest. It had very negative connotations. So the... <clears throat> the names of these parties sort of evolved organically. And on the one hand, you had the Federalists, um, who were seen as sort of the, the elite. They, they had less faith in the ability of average people to govern themselves, and they believed strongly that we needed to elect uh, elite leaders who would uh, guide and, and rule over the people. They tended to align themselves with England uh, and, uh, and the monarchy, so their opponents sort of accused them of, being, of wanting to uh, impose an England-like monarchy uh, on the United States when we had just fought this war to, to kick the British out. On the other side, you had these, uh, this sort of loose affiliation, uh, the, the, the Democratic Republicans, the Republicans, the, uh, the Anti-Federalists, who uh, favored France, which was the, uh, had just, of course, undergone the French Revolution. Uh, a lot of Americans were very proud of that. Look at this, uh, this great nation is following our example. And they uh, uh, were very suspicious of the Federalists and their adherence to England. So you had this clash of ideals, and uh, that, that's how the parties sort of uh, came into formation. Can either of the political parties today trace their roots to those two parties? Can you say that one evolved into one and the other evolved into the other? That's a great question. It's very difficult to do that. And, and one of the interesting things, one of the reasons I, I liked telling this story was because I think it's really about the importance of free speech in this country and the foundations. Where, where did free speech come from? Why is it important to let people you don't like say things that you don't like? And the Federalists on the one hand and the Republicans on the other hand contain enough elements, both of them contain elements of both of the modern parties. On the one hand you have the, uh, the Federalists who were seen as the uh, the, uh, the, the interest of the corporations and the big money, which we, which we now may associate with Republicans. But on the other hand, they believed in a big government and, and, a, and a larger bureaucracy, which we maybe, maybe focus more with the Democrats. And on the other hand, you had the Republicans who were sort of seen as, as anti-government, almost we might think of them as Tea Party-esque in a sense for their mistrust of a federal government. But they were also the party of, of uh, open immigration they were the party of, of the of, of the small, per, you know, the, the little guy. So they both of these sides had a, had enough of both that it's very hard to sort of draw your allegiance from a modern perspective just to one or just to the other. And I think that's a great backdrop to sort of examine the issue of free speech.
And who was the head of each of the parties or whatever, the factions, whatever well, they were? Well, uh, John Adams, as the president in 1798, which is uh, the, the, the year that the book is primarily centered, was the leader of the Federalist uh, Party. And his vice president, Thomas Jefferson, uh, interestingly, back then, because you didn't, the, the party system wasn't in, in place. So the person who uh, became vice president was simply the person who got the second uh, came in second in the presidential election, and that was Thomas Jefferson, and he was uh, sort of the leader of these Democratic Republicans, of the Republicans, and uh, very interesting. He was the only um, uh, Republican in the Adams administration, and uh, they, they, he, he sort of worked to undermine a lot of what Adams was doing during, during his presidency. And one of the interesting things, when Congress passed this Sedition Act, making it illegal to criticize the government, they uh, specifically uh, left out vice president from the roster of people that you uh, could not criticize, and that was a clear, uh, <laughs> clear signal of who the vice president was, Thomas Jefferson. Now, where did Congress meet at the time? Uh, Congress met in Philadelphia and Congress Hall, and they and um, that's right next to Independence Hall. Yes, exactly, and and it's still it's a great tour. I mean, it's just wonderful to 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 go there. You can still go and you can uh, see where these guys met, and it's such a small seems like such a small room for such big things, big momentous uh, times. And you say in your book that uh, the Senate met in secrecy until almost the start of this book. They did. There there was um, the. Senate and the and the House of Representatives were sort of seen as the as as uh, as I say I think that you had these two conflicting philosophies over what represented the threats to our democracy and the Federalists believed that it came from the rabble and that 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 you needed an elite uh, body that would rule over the rabble. Uh, on the other side, you had the Republicans who believed that people were wise enough to rule themselves and they feared the, the incipient monarchy. So as sort of a compromise, you had these two bodies, uh, the Senate and the House of Representatives. And for the first several years, the, the, the Senate, I mean, the Senate were uh, appointed rather than elected well into the 20th century. But uh, for the first several years, uh, they were not even, uh, public was not admitted into the, uh, into the chambers, uh, the idea that these guys needed to sort of operate uh, removed from from the the populace so they could make wise decisions and then even after after several years they did construct a modest gallery but they conducted most of their business it seemed in committee and came out and just had these sort of perfunctory votes so the reporters the journalists of the day spent most of their time downstairs covering the house of representatives you write a lot about newspapers they play a prominent role in your book what was what was the newspaper industry like at the time and, and who read them how widely read were newspapers you know there are some really interesting parallels i think between the newspaper business of the 1790s and the internet age uh, because uh, I, I think that um, in, in those days, uh, in the 1790s, newspapers were very partisan. There was very rare to have, uh, have, have somebody sort of have a pretense of objectivity. You were, you were uh, for the Federalists or you were for the Republicans and you were viciously smearing the opposition at all times. And they were really the principal uh, means of communication. If you go back, one of the interesting things when you're researching uh, this, this period is you, you go back, you find an item in the, uh, in a, in in a Philadelphia Aurora newspaper, prominent, the most prominent uh, Republican newspaper, and you 
then you start re you research newspapers in Vermont and South Carolina and New York, and you find the identical squib in the uh, three weeks later in these papers all around the country. So things went viral, and it was the way that that news was spread. It just all happened with a little bit of a delay. Did the, did the masses read newspapers, or was it just an educated elite that read them? Well, I mean, I think there was it was definitely a, a, a higher rate of illiteracy than we have today. But I think that they were, that you know, I mean, uh, the the population was was uh, consumed with with information, with finding out. I think that if you, if you go uh, throughout the the small towns and and uh, and and uh, cities all across the early states, these new Newspapers were doing well. They were competing newspapers, and that, to me, connotes uh, pretty wide readership. Now, um, is it was it a parallel between what newspapers were like then and and say cable networks now, where you have Fox News clearly one side? And yeah. Oh, thank you for, for bringing me back there. Yeah. So, so the the parallel that I see is I think I started in the the newspaper business sort of right before the internet came came into being, and I think that at that time. Uh, newspapers felt, and to a certain, to, I mean, to a degree today, still still do, but hold that sort of cherished idea of being objective, and and I think that what the internet do, has done uh, has has been to to uh, open up the news to so many of these different outlets that are just very partisan, and they don't pretend towards objectivity, and. For for good or for bad, what what the internet uh, age of today reminds me much more of that 1790s, where where people were were out there really promoting a point of view with not just uh, on the editorial page, but but really putting it out there throughout their their publication. Well, you mentioned the Alien and Sedition Acts. What what were they? The Alien and Sedition Acts uh, were passed in 1798, and the Alien Acts applied to to immigrants, and uh, they they did things like uh, uh, extended the period for, at which you could become a naturalized citizen. They gave sort of sweeping powers to the president to uh, to uh, lock people up if they uh, uh, foreign nationals if they were suspected of anything and deport them essentially without uh, uh, trial. So it uh, that that was to. Um, as I said, there was this fear of war with, with uh, France looming at the time, and so we, so it gave gave the uh, the president these sort of really broad powers against immigrants. Uh, the Sedition Act, which is what I focus my book on, applied really to ourselves, and that's what to me made it interesting because uh, because we had just passed this uh, the First Amendment seven years earlier, which would seem to give a blanket uh, decree that Congress shall make no law uh, abridging freedom of press or freedom of speech. And here we were turning on our own citizens and telling them and abridging freedom of press and freedom of speech. Was was that law tested before the Supreme Court? That's a great question. The Supreme Court, uh, it's another thing that we assume is in the Constitution but isn't, is the idea that the Supreme Court will provide judicial review of laws to test whether they are uh, constitutional or not. And that is not a constitutional function of the Supreme Court. It's something that developed in the early 1800s. And in fact, so far from declaring the Sedition Act unconstitutional, you had a Supreme Court that was stocked with Federalists. And in those days, in the early days of the Supreme Court, the justices uh, didn't 
wait in the Capitol for the cases to come to them as the court of last review. They went out uh, by mandate, went out, uh, traveled around the, the country. It was called the, going on the circuit, and they had to travel. It was a horrible part of the job because the roads were bad and, and, uh, and it was kind of treacherous, but they went out and actually sat on cases. So a number of the Sedition Act cases were presided over by these uh, Supreme Court justices in, in a very partisan way uh, when you, you would have hoped they would have uh, been the ones to say this is unconstitutional. Was George Washington a Federalist? George Washington was a, was a Federalist, yes. He, he uh, uh, you know, was the, the, of course, the president before John Adams and, and did uh, believe in the strong federal government and, uh, and uh, I, the, the, uh, he certainly began to feel some of the heat of the criticism from the opposition as, as these sort of things were broiling. But uh, after he left the presidency, it really came down on John Adams's head. You say in here that uh, Alexander Hamilton was one of the most vocal opponents of the Bill of Rights. Yes, the, the, uh, there, there was a lot of, if you sort of look at some of the controversies over the, the Bill of Rights, we tend to think these things were chiseled in stone, these, these uh, glorious 10, ten uh, amendments to the Constitution. There was a lot of uh, controversy over whether we needed a Bill of Rights. And interestingly, uh, people like Hamilton, it wasn't that they didn't believe in that people should have rights, there was a lot of fear that um, that if you named ten rights, that um, or if you outlined ten areas of rights, that anything that wasn't in the Bill of Rights would be open game for regulation. And sort of paradoxically, there was also the idea that uh, that which seems a bit sort of optimistic, which is that if it's not in the Constitution, the government won't be allowed to do it, and they won't try to do it. So therefore, we don't need to outline rights in a Bill of Rights. And of course, as we see, uh, government ambitions uh, never cease. And so it's it's you know if, when you think about how vital those those ten amendments have been to the history of our country, uh, they they're sort of at the center of solidarity so many of our of our problems and issues and, and you write and this is your opinion the Bill of Rights is perhaps the most the single most beautiful and vital document ever produced by a government you can get goosebumps just thinking about what it meant yeah I, I feel that way when I read the Bill of Rights I think it's because so many governments in the history in the history of the world just about everyone has, promised what it will do for you if you just hand over the keys, if you just uh, sign away some of your rights. The uh, that last government was bad. Just trust us. We'll, we'll take over and we'll give you this and we'll provide that for you. We'll make life right. Uh, the Bill of Rights is so extraordinarily rare in the history of government documents as a government that's set out to say what it can't do, how it can't mess with your life, how it won't interfere with you. These are your rights as an individual against this awesome power, the government. And so I, I find that incredibly inspiring that at the, that the outset of the country, the founders were wise enough to include that language. Uh, tell me about Benjamin Franklin Bache and uh, the Philadelphia Aurora. Uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, Bache was was the grandson of Benjamin Franklin, and uh, he uh, Benjamin Franklin had taken him over to France as a young boy when he went when when Franklin went over on his mission, his diplomatic mission, and instilled in in Bache the this sort of love of France and this this idealistic conception of of liberty. 
when Bates, uh, when when Franklin died, he bequeathed his printing equipment to his grandson back in Philadelphia, and it sort of uh, ironically sealed Bates's doom because he went on to uh, found this newspaper uh, called the the Philadelphia. It was called the Aurora, and it. The, the more Beach saw of the actual workings of government, the more he rebelled. So he started off uh, uh, liking George Washington. He thought he was going to be great. And then as soon as Washington had the Jay Treaty, which a lot of the Republicans felt was too compliant with England and signed away too many of our of our rights and and other measures he pegged Washington as a royalist and somebody trying to riding around with his six white horses in his carriage and trying to instill a monarchy so he took after out after Washington Adams the same way he had this very brief honeymoon period with Beach and then Beach didn't like what Adams was doing and went after him. He was kind of a pure idealist who couldn't stand the uh, the actual compromises and messy workings of government and uh, was really a thorn in the side of the Federalists. Was it considered heresy at the time to criticize George Washington? Uh, it, it, it was. I mean, Washington was, of course, godlike, uh, 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 but Washington did come in for his share of, of criticism. I think it's one of the realities of being the president, and I think that that's one of the things that really emerged. Nobody knew what this office of the presidency was really going to be about. And one thing that became clear was that that uh, it's one thing to be the the, the godlike figure who uh, who who led the military and the and, and uh, helped us win the the Revolutionary War and and independence. It's another to to be involved in the daily back and forth of government. And as soon as you start making these decisions that are controversial, that impact people's lives, I, I don't care who you are, you're going to have your critics. And every president from Washington on through to today has, has felt that, no matter how popular they are. What's it like reading the Philadelphia Aurora now? Uh, the Aurora is uh, a very extremely lively newspaper. And I think one of the things that uh, uh, I was struck with was the, the courage, I mean, you, you mentioned wh whether it was reckless and, and whether you agree with the Republicans or the Federalists, um, the, the courage that, that uh, it took to publish those things. In those days, we like to think of, the, of history as being full of civil people, and we need to go back to the age of civility. In fact, Beach was not, not only attacked verbally, he, mobs would uh, show up at his, uh, outside his... Um, home, which was above the, the uh, printing presses, and windows were broken. He was attacked physically. So putting yourself out there uh, had its risks. And when you read, knowing that, you read the stridency of some of the criticisms that he put out there about the most powerful people in the United States, you have to admire it. Where do you find these papers to read them? Well, there, there are any number of uh, great resources. The, uh, the um, Massachusetts Historical Society there in, in Philadelphia, a number of great, great resources. There are also wonderful online, there's a wonderful online resource called America's Historical Newspapers where you can go back in time and research uh, uh, newspapers from any given period. And one of the things that, that you can do today that researchers in the past haven't been able to do is you can research according to keywords and names. So what that enabled me to do, I mentioned that the outset, this this guy Luther Baldwin, this sort of 
uh, semi-unknown character uh, who'd been arrested for making a joke on a street corner. Well, I, I was able to actually hired my, my daughter for a couple of summers as my research when she was researcher when she was in college, and she used this researcher resource and did this uh, research on Luther Baldwin, and we found all these really interesting details of his life and his death and these things he was involved with, and it's uh, it's a terrific resource. I want to ask you about um, uh, when at one point Benjamin Franklin Bache, uh, his he dies of the yellow fever epidemic, and his wife emerges as kind of a Yes, she, she she was uh, she was a, uh, a a very courageous woman. Uh, Bache died when he he uh, had been charged uh, not not under the Sedition Act because the Congress couldn't wait. They had passed the they they were about to pass the Sedition Act, but they really were sick of Bache, and he'd published. He, he was. He was sort of like a, an 18th century WikiLeaks. He was getting government documents, and they'd appear in the Aurora before uh, <laughs> before Adams had seen them in some cases. So they really felt like they had to get rid of this guy, and they they uh, charged him uh, with uh, with sedition under common law, sedition, and uh, and he was awaiting trial in the summer of 1798. A, a yellow fever epidemic swept through Philadelphia. Most of the government, the Adamses, went up to uh, Quincy, Massachusetts, and uh, the uh, much of the government moved lock, stock, and barrel to Trenton, New Jersey. So everybody skedaddled. Bache uh, stayed behind with the one weapon he had, which was the Aurora, and uh, he uh, contracted yellow fever almost quite literally at, at the printing presses and died. And so he never had his day in court. And his wife, his widow, um, uh, wound up. Uh, you know, you wonder, well, will that be the end of the of the newspaper? And and uh, within a few hours, she had issued a decree: the Aurora will not die. And and uh, and and several weeks later, it it reemerged and was as sort of strong as ever. And then there was William Duane. Who was William Duane was her was was Margaret's pressman and uh, and had been had been uh, Bage's pressman and uh, he turned out to be just as strident so they the Federalists uh, and, and he wound up marrying her uh, uh, marrying Bage's widow and they ran the Aurora for years and years and years and uh, he was if anything just as vocal as, as Bage so they didn't <laughs> the efforts to silence the Aurora and Bage uh, failed. Was the Sedition Act popular among the public? Well, it, it, it's funny. I, I think that Americans ultimately, one of the things I really truly believe about this country is that ultimately we wake up to injustice. But it doesn't happen quickly all the time. And I think that, that uh, people didn't really know what to make of it. I mean, they, the, the Federalists were extremely popular. These misfits, in a lot of cases, were unpopular. They were saying outrageous things. And uh, these are our leaders. They they know what they're doing. And what does it? You know, it's. I think it was maybe a little bit obscure to a lot of people. Well, what does it mean? You're just going to stop these people saying these horrendous things. And what happened was over time, uh, as people witnessed the spectacle of people being rounded up, thrown in jail, put through these sort of kangaroo trials, for having used what are were supposed to be our unalienable rights, the, the country really sort of woke up to that. There were other cases. Matthew Lyon, a representative from, from Vermont who uh, 
had come over as an, as an immigrant, as a teenager, as an indentured servant, and, and sort of uh, built himself up in Vermont, gotten himself elected to Congress, was an outspoken opponent of the, of the Federalists, was uh, charged with sedition for some of the things he'd said on the campaign trail, and was thrown in jail and was reelected from, uh, to Congress from his jail cell in Virgin's Vermont. And so that, to me, is an indication of a turning point. And people started signing. Pennsylvania was huge. I forget. I, I worked out some of the statistics. I did a calculation basing uh, the population of Pennsylvania at the time versus today, and it was this extraordinarily high percentage of Pennsylvanians signed petitions saying, uh, we don't want this Sedition Act. Uh, this is unconstitutional. We need to repeal this. People were waking up to the injustice. And interestingly, to petitioning the government is one of the elements of the First Amendment, one of the ones we talk least about, but it became a very powerful tool to, to overturn the, I mean, to, to uh, express displeasure with the law. I want to go back again to uh, Lyon, to uh, what was his first name? Matthew. Matthew Lyon, who is one of the misfits in your book. Yes. And at one point when he's a member of Congress, he spits in the face of another member of Congress and he feigned surprise that spitting in another member's face <laughs> on the House floor might be viewed as a breach of conduct since it did not directly pertain to matters of state. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was skating on thin, a little bit of thin ice there, if he did, you might say that... Uh, that he was a little disingenuous there, but that was an interesting, it was a fascinating case where, where uh, uh, Matthew Lyon had uh, been an officer in the, the uh, Revolutionary War with the Green Mountain Boys in Vermont. Uh, and um, at one point, his, some troops under him had run away uh, on the verge of a, of a battle, and so um, Lyon was charged with... Uh, with uh, was cashiered uh, briefly for uh, I, I don't know if the term cowardice was was actually used but uh, he was re ultimately reinstated served out the war but throughout his life his enemies used this this term uh, called him a, uh, referred to this uh, this idea that he'd been a coward and referred to a wooden sword the, this the sort of tale had been that he'd been forced to wear a wooden sword as a sign of cowardice so uh, one day on Congress uh, on the floor of Congress uh, Matthew Lyon was uh, was uh, postulating on this, that, or the other, anti-federalist, uh, and saying that he should move to Connecticut, which was a deeply federalist state. He should move to Connecticut because he would whip the people into shape, and they're getting bad represent representation. So this representative, Roger Griswold of Connecticut, called out, uh, if you go to Connecticut, you better wear your wooden sword, which was the same thing as calling him a coward. Uh, Griswold got up and repeated it, and that's when Matthew Lyon turned around and spit in his face. And so there was a, it was it's hilarious. If you read through the annals of Congress, Congress spent two weeks. They forgot about France. They forgot about foreign affairs. They forgot about every other issue. Uh, they spent two weeks discussing the spitting uh, incident, and ultimately they didn't come up with the two-thirds majority needed to expel Lyon. That's when Lyon said, gee, I didn't know that, uh, that spitting could be considered a breach of conduct. <laughs> and when, when they failed, when Congress failed to eject Lyon, uh, Roger Griswold took matters into his own hands and he walked into Congress one day carrying a stout cane and started beating uh, Lyon about the head. Lyon got up from his desk and grabbed some tongs from the fireplace. You can still see the fireplace there. It's great to reimagine the fight and started beating back uh, Griswold and they were ultimately separated, bloodied, but miraculously not seriously harmed. And there was another several weeks of 
of congressional <laughs> examination of this incident. And at the end, neither one was expelled from Congress, but it really iced the, uh, the hatred that these two parties were developing for well, each other. They don't have congressional debates like that these days, do they? <laughs> no, and that's why I say when you think, when, you, when, when anybody says something that, that seems a little impolite or rude and they say, we need to go back to the age of civility, <laughs> I would love to point everybody back to the Griswold Lion Affair. <laughs> Are you saying here that it's the newspapers who uh, compiled the, the record of what was said in Congress and not Congress itself? Yeah, the, the Constitution only mandates that the Senate and the Constitution keep sort of uh, daily records of their activities, but there isn't much guidance about what that should entail. So the Senate Journal, as I say, the, 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 the uh, press didn't spend much time uh, up there trying to watch what was going on in the Senate because the, it was very, seemed very perfunctory. So when you read the Senate Journal, it's just, just bling, 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 this is what happened. Uh, they spent time down in the Congress, down in Congress, and it was their records, uh, their daily reports of what was going on that form our our real understanding. Because uh, without that, we would just have of Congress as well these just sort of uh, sketchy uh, details. There was some at at some point there was a movement. You know this this. Uh, conflict between the press and politicians started right at the beginning. You know, it, uh, it was not a 21st century or a 20th century phenomenon. And right from the start, people would be, uh, politicians would see uh, what they'd said in the, in the local paper and they would say, this is distorted, this isn't what I said. So they toyed with the idea of banning press from, from Congress or making pr the press submit their notes in advance. And none of these got very far. Uh, and then there was a movement afoot that they should hire an official historian. And uh, uh, John, it was uh, James Madison, actually, who was in Congress at the time that put a stop to that because uh, he, he realized two things. One was that, um, that whoever held power at, time, at the time would essentially control history because it would be, they'd be able to appoint the historian who would be recording. Uh, but I think the more persuasive uh, for the members of Congress was that... Um, if you, if it was up to the congressmen themselves to keep records of everything they said, that it would be an enormous homework assignment to follow along and and uh, and re redo and revise, and their lives would be consumed. And so that the idea of having an official historian never got that very far. Who was Timothy Pickering? Timothy Pickering was the Secretary of State under John Adams, and. Uh, you know, when you pass laws like the Sedition Act, which enable uh, would-be tyrants to do mischief, there's always a Timothy Pickering, and he was uh, extremely enthusiastic. John Adams always tried to divorce himself. I mean, Adams had been the most vocal uh, proponent of free speech as a young man, and he always wanted to sort of distance himself from this law that I think he knew was, was not a great law. Timothy Pickering embraced it as Secretary of State, and he had a cadre of, of informers around the country uh, in, informing on when they would uh, uh, read something in a local paper that could be construed as, as seditious, they would report to Pickering, and then Pickering would contract, contact the prosecutors and recommend um, in this or that city and recommend prosecutions. It got kind of ridiculous at one point somebody 
reported to in the city of Philadelphia that uh, that a, a woman was uh, making military uniforms that seemed to be in the French fashion, and she instructed the local. And so Pickering got wind of this and instructed the local prosecutor to investigate uh, what I guess could be called seditious tailoring. <laughs> Is he the villain in your book? Uh, I think he he is I th because as I say there there's the laws like the Sedition Act uh, they they open up it's it's when you sort of find who the Joe McCarthy's are the people who will take this open door and uh, for whatever reasons whether it's to acquire power or because they a actually believe that. That, that they know that they are so wise that, that you need to clamp down on anybody who disagrees with me, but who will take that and ignore people's rights and stamp on rights to, to get what they want and to achieve their objectives. And he was that kind of a, that kind of a figure. So I think he, he would come the closest to being sort of the out-and-out -out villain of the piece. Why did Adams sign the bill in the first place? Adams signed the bill. He was an embattled president. He, uh, he, I think, was shocked and taken aback by the level of criticism he was taken, taking by the, from the Republicans who accused him of being a royalist and an elitist and a, and a would-be king. And Adams was actually a man of rather plain dress and from, from not, an, uh, not an elite background, certainly not like Thomas Jefferson, who was the Republican. Uh, he was taking this criticism on a daily basis, and he was, uh, he was, we were sort of on the verge of, of a war, what seemed to be a looming war with France, and Adams was trying to hold that off, and on the one hand, you had members of his own party, Pickering, uh, and, and others who were the hawks, who were sort of urging, pushing the U.S. into a war with, with France, and on the other hand, uh, and Adams really didn't want that. And on the other hand, you had the Republicans accusing Adams of being a warmonger every time he said something that could be construed as belligerent or anti-French. So he was caught in a real pincher. And I think that he, he truly believed that these people criticizing him were making his life difficult, making it hard for him to govern. And I think that he sort of forgot his earlier commitment to free speech and said, we got to get, you know, the, we need to pass this law. You say John Adams' behavior, far from describing reluctant or conflicted cons consent to the law, reveals a politically embattled leader who eagerly embraced the Sedition Act to silence his critics. Yes, he, you know, I think afterwards when the Sedition Act proved to be deeply unpopular, it became certainly the, the least attractive part of his legacy as president, I think. Uh, he, he really tried to distance himself from it and say that he was reluctant and that he didn't didn't want it to, you know, he just sort of went along. And that's sort of his defenders through history have sort of, uh, I, I think, perpetuated that, that idea. And my take on that, first off, there was uh, Thomas Cooper was one of the defendants in Northumberland, Pennsylvania, uh, the a small town of Northumberland, Pennsylvania. He was a British immigrant, uh, had come over with the famous scientist Joseph Priestley. They were both sort of political misfits who, from England who had, who had come to the United States to escape controversy in England and immediately became controversial in the United States. 
and Cooper uh, became a, a harsh critic of John Adams, and Timothy Pickering, the Secretary of State, went after Cooper, but with John Adams's close consult, there are actually records of communications between the two when, when in, uh, Adams enthusiastically endorses the idea of prosecuting. There were other cases in which John Adams refused to pardon. There was a, a poor guy, uh, David Brown, up in Massachusetts who had put up a sign saying that he saying that he didn't like the president and didn't like this and didn't like that and really he was just sort of a wandering misanthrope kind of harmless but he wound up spending uh, you know a long time he was I forget the exact number I think it was a clear almost two years in prison uh, and and John Adams personally refused to pardon him uh, the the case of Luther Baldwin, the the, the guy on the street making the, the drunken joke about Adams, um, and and this is one of the things that I was able to sort of uncover with this great resource, uh, um, America's Historical Newspapers. Uh, this prosecutor, uh, Lucius Horatio Stockton, sort of took it on as a mission to go after this guy, uh, Luther Baldwin, to uh, to show how loyal he was to John Adams and to the Federalists. And then ultimately, at the very end of his presidency, John Adams tried to uh, reward uh, Stockton with a, a high appointment. I, I think it was Secretary of War, um, which was clearly sort of an absurd appointment. And people immediately said, oh, that's because uh, Stockton went after um, Luther Baldwin in the Sedition Act. So I think it's disingenuous to say that John Adams was, was not sort of a participant. And then on top of all that, he's the chief, the, the president is the chief law enforcement officer in the land. And most of the people who were prosecuted under the, under the Sedition Act were prosecuted for criticizing John Adams. So if he as president even passively lets that happen, uh, my contention is that makes him an active and responsible participant in the Sedition Act. Did you read the David McCullough book on John Adams? I did, and David McCullough is is <laughs> brilliant. I mean, that, that book in a lot of ways is it's one of the greatest political biographies ever written, and it set the stage for this wonderful batch of of, of uh, lengthy reexaminations of the founders by, by Chernow and, and John Meacham and, and others. It's a fabulous book. Um, it, it does go a little light on the on the Sedition Act. It clearly identifies the Sedition Act as a major mistake, but uh, doesn't spend a whole lot of pages on it. The, the, the John Adams you portray here does not necessarily jive with the John Adams that well, I think Adams was a, was a great man, clearly a great man in, in so many ways. And I, I, I sort of frame his, the Sedition Act as, as a tragedy. If, for a lesser politician, it would have been a, a bad move. For John Adams, it was sort of a tragedy, a personal tragedy, because he betrayed his own ideals. And as I read some of his writings as a younger man, he was, he was of all the founders, sort of the most passionate uh, uh, in defending free speech and the importance of a free and open press. And in one case, I even found that there was a, an essay where it almost seemed to me like a, a message to his future self, where he was saying to printers, don't let the powerful accuse you of sedition because the jaws of power will try to clamp down upon you and, and use your rights to, to criticize your elected leaders. So I, I look out of this, sort of that aspect of it as a, as a tragedy. There were a lot of great things about Adams. I mean, one of the things you have to be clear about when you're looking at the founders is it all depends on what story you're telling. If you're telling a story of, of a different issue, maybe Adams is the hero in that story. Um, 
but in this one, in this uh, examination of the Sedition Act, uh, I, I do do go into his what I think are, were his failings. It was illegal to put up a liberty pole. Under the yes, Act? the liberty pole was was a device. Uh, it was almost a form of communication. It was, <laughs> didn't have the internet, didn't have the telephone, didn't have uh, uh, a lot of the modern communications. So during the Revolutionary War, this became sort of a way of protesting against the British. People would put up these these poles with signs at the top, and they would say, uh, uh, you know, liberty. Uh, they would be messages of freedom, and and it was a way you you, you might communicate to people something that was going on in code, but or just to, to signal your, your uh, disagreement with the prevailing authorities. Well, what happened was after the revolution, uh, the U.S. government, uh, now, now it was us governing ourselves. And um, people who didn't like the government uh, started, some of them put up liberty poles. It was a tried and true tradition. But now that this was aimed at ourselves, the people in power uh, didn't look on it as this glorious <laughs> uh, way to express yourself. They looked on it as sedition. And the one guy who got caught up the most in was this poor guy, David Brown, who uh, who uh, wound up being charged and really put through a kangaroo court. He, he uh, it's, it's stewed in jail for several months before his trial and then ultimately tried to plead guilty. And the, the presiding justice, who was a Supreme Court justice named Samuel Chase, accepted his guilty plea and then insisted on trying the case anyway because he said he wanted to ascertain the degree of guilt. And then he sentenced uh, Brown to a lengthy prison sentence and a fine. Brown was a poor man. He had no way to pay off his fine, no way to earn the money to pay off the fine. So he essentially became a guest of the federal government uh, uh, until basically the end of the Adams administration. How many people were actually tried or convicted or served time in jail as a result of the Sedition Act? It's, it's a little difficult to quantify exactly because you, you, uh, you sort of go by court cases where you, where you can find them. Uh, newspaper references sometimes, and then there was some discrepancy over was this case filed under the Sedition Act or was it not? But it, 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 the, the best uh, assessment is about, uh, you know, 10 people, 10, 12 people uh, tried and, uh, and uh, convicted and punished for sedition. What was Thomas Jefferson doing while all this was going on? Uh, Jefferson was the vice president, and he was the the only Republican in the administration, as I said, and he was an opponent of, of Adams in a lot of ways. And uh, he, he Jefferson was a very astute politician. He wasn't always the one sort of making the bellicose statements himself, but uh, he worked uh, sort of to undermine policies that he didn't like, including the, the uh, Sedition Act, and he paid... Uh, uh, some opposition journalists to keep their to help keep their uh, presses going to write anti-Adams and anti-Federalist screeds. There was one James Thompson Callender who was really sort of one of the most unhinged misfits in my book. You who, say he, he uh, Beige may have been the most controversial journalist in America, but he was not the most despised. That distinction belongs to James Thompson yes. Callender. Callender was one of these classic myth misanthropes who just didn't like anybody who was in power, and he escaped essentially from England after writing this book against the British authorities and uh, had to escape to the United States. He came over, uh, settled in Philadelphia, and promptly began uh, infuriating everybody. And what, his, what he did was 
whoever was in power, he went after them. So he never formed the alliances that say somebody who was a Federalist journalist might, you'd take some heat from the Republicans, but at least you had some cover from the Federalists. Uh, um, or the Republican journalists, the same thing. Calendar sort of went after everybody. So over the course of his life, by the end of his life, he drowned in the James River in, in Richmond, Virginia, without a friend in the world. Uh, You're right that once, once Jefferson became president, Calendar targeted Jefferson. He did. Uh, Callender wound up uh, being charged with sedition. He had, he had moved down to Virginia to, to out from Philadelphia down to Virginia, which was a sort of a more Republican state. It was Jefferson's home state and it seemed friendlier and he edited a Republican and anti-Adams newspaper in Richmond and he wound up getting charged with sedition and put on trial in Richmond. Thomas Jefferson worked hard to sort of uh, organize Calendar's defense sort of on the sly but he realized that that uh, that Calendar needed a strong defense because we need to stand up to this sedition act so uh, Jefferson helped arrange this sort of dream team of Republican lawyers who uh, really put the prosecutor, it was Samuel Chase, the Supreme Court Justice, again, down in, down in Virginia, putting Callender on trial. And although Callender was convicted, these lawyers really used the, the pulpit to point up a lot of the flaws and hypocrisies and dangers of this, of this law. So it was one of the turning tides uh, against the Sedition Act. But Callender was sentenced to prison, spent several months stewing in jail. And he considered himself a martyr. And uh, ultimately, Thomas Jefferson was elected president shortly thereafter. And Callender uh, figured that, wow, well, now my time has come. Now I'll get, he wanted a government appointment. And Jefferson, as I said, was a very astute politician and um, had realized the value of having this slightly daffy uh, uh, journalist on his side when it was the opposition. But now that Jefferson was the president, it was a non-starter <laughs> putting this guy in public office. So Calendar, uh, it became clear that Calendar was not going to get a presidential appointment. He wanted to be postmaster of Richmond. And instead, Jefferson sent him $50 or something. And Calendar was incensed, promptly switched parties from Republican to Federalist, and began taking off after Thomas Jefferson in his newspaper. And he actually was the first uh, journalist to uh, expose the, uh, the affair, what became is now, now pretty widely accepted as the, the case, the, the uh, fathering of uh, uh, children with uh, one of his slaves, Sally Hemings. Well, who was the, what was the paper that uh, leaked the story about Alexander Hamilton's affair? That was, um, oh, that, that was uh, Calendar as well. That was, uh, yeah, Calendar, uh, you know, as I said, he went after all the powerful. And this was earlier, back when he was in Philadelphia. And he, uh, he wrote for a number of the Philadelphia papers. He wrote for the Aurora. He wrote for some of the other Republican papers. And he hated Hamilton because Hamilton uh, was sort of seen as the, the most powerful. He was the one who, he was the, the, the treasurer. He had uh, uh, instituted the United States Treasury. He had consolidated the debts of the United States in the federal government. He was widely seen as, as sort of the, the most powerful promoter of a strong federal government. So people People like Callender, Jefferson didn't like Hamilton. Um, the, 
calendar went out went after Hamilton as a monarchist as a man trying to steal power from the, from the people one of the ways he did it was he exposed uh, there had been a long rumored but not verified affair between uh, Alexander Hamilton and a woman named Mariah Reynolds um, and it was t very very it was one of, Hamilton was a was a very smart man but it was sort of the greatest misstep perhaps of his life and uh, and um, so calendar research reported this and it, and it was the, a tremendous embarrassment to Hamilton and probably ended his uh, elective career but it was it Thomas Jefferson who leaked the story to calendar that, that that's you know calendar and and Jefferson had a close relationship and uh, calendar got hold of some some letters back and forth between various people uh, Hamilton and others about the affair and uh, um, and it was never, I mean, you can't prove exactly who it came from, but I think it's pretty clear that Hamilton thought that, that Jefferson was the one that, uh, that had leaked the papers, and it certainly wouldn't be surprising. It would have fit, I think, Jefferson's uh, M.O., that, that he uh, operated sort of on the sly, un, un, beneath, uh, he, 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 uh, it was kind of his way to, you know, does, does it reflect badly on Jefferson that he was operating kind of in the background while people who were his supporters were going to jail over this? Uh, that's, a, that's a great point. I, I, uh, I, th I think that um, he, he's not the first sort of politician or the last in history that, that sort of looked out for his own interests and looked out for his own position. I mean, whether he felt that, that he could do more good by staying in in politics and uh, becoming ultimately perhaps president as he did and uh, effecting change that way as opposed to sort of putting himself out there writing things that uh, becoming a newspaper editor and and uh, putting himself on the chopping block and getting arrested you might make that argument but that's certainly I think a fair point Jefferson did take a take a considerable risk um, although he didn't take authorships of the uh, two famous documents called the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions, which he and Madison wrote uh, uh, to counter the Sedition Act. And what these were were uh, documents where the, they worked with the state governments of, of Kentucky and Virginia and essentially said if the federal government is going to pass unconstitutional laws like the Sedition Act, be warned that we don't have to go along with them. So it was sort of this, this like nullification, nullification and, and, and ultimately some of Jefferson's ideas were used by uh, um, in, in the South leading up to the, up to the uh, Civil War uh, as, hey, you know, if we don't like what the federal government does, we can leave. But there was a certain degree of courage with Jefferson in publishing those, although he didn't acknowledge authorship of them until much, much later. Uh, theoretically, I mean, he, the, these were published. They were highly controversial. Madison wrote the Virginia one. Jefferson wrote the Kentucky one, which was, if anything, more strident. Um, and uh, if you might think that that if if his authorship of that had come out, he, he could well have uh, faced uh, retribution. Uh, what brought this era to an end? The Sedition Act, uh, the, the Federalists who passed the Sedition Act were uh, uh, very crafty in the way that they uh, passed it. They, they uh, had it end officially with the last day in office, the last day of the Federalist Congress and the last day of John Adams's term in office 
as president. Presumably, if they had all been reelected, they uh, could have reinstated the uh, <laughs> the Sedition Act for another term. But what happened? I think that the, the uh, tide turned of public sentiment. The um, the immediacy of the looming war with France kind of waned. It was called the quasi-war. We never actually went to war with France. So it's a lot harder to kind of maintain these rights usurping uh, laws and, uh, and acts in the absence of this dire threat immediately. So people's fear receded. And at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, People were waking up to the injustice of this law, seeing people thrown in jail. So it was very damaging to Adams and to the to um, the, the Federalists in Congress uh, in the next election. And so in 1800, uh, they were turned out of office and Jefferson assumed the presidency. Uh, the Democratic-Republicans took over Congress and nobody really had the taste to uh, to reinstate the, the Sedition Act. So it sort of quietly... Uh, faded away. And I think Jefferson, you know, we mentioned all of these guys are, are have their pluses and minuses. You know, Jefferson, Adams, I think uh, one of Jefferson's finest moments was his inaugural address when he famously said, we're all uh, uh, Federalists, we're all Republicans. And, and he specifically spoke to the idea of uh, having to allow free speech. And he said, what does it matter? I'm paraphrasing, but what does it matter uh, if if let let somebody even say they don't like the United States, let them try to tear down the United States verbally. Uh, it, we're we're a strong enough con com, uh, country to survive that, and it was a, sort of a ringing endorsement for free speech. How do you think the First Amendment is doing today? That's a great question. I I think uh, I I think that it's constantly under threat. I think that we the Sedition Act the was. The first great test of whether we're going to live up to these glorious words that we put in the First Amendment um, of, of free speech. And if we hadn't, if, if uh, uh, the Federalists had succeeded and uh, people had been thrown in jail and had just been perpetuated, it might have been very difficult to establish the, uh, the principles of free speech in our country. But we overcame that hurdle. We faced it many, many times in our history in the past. And I think to this day we have to be very cognizant of free speech issues. And again, now as then, it all hinges on uh, misfits and people saying obnoxious things and, and uh, people saying things calculated to inflame. So it's always hate speech. It's... Uh, it's the, the highly controversial talk that I think um, is easiest to say, well, it won't harm liberty by getting rid of these folks. They, these guys are saying such awful things that will enhance liberty by preventing them from saying things. And uh, so it's easy to get caught up in the moment and say uh, and, and, and think about passing a law. And then it's only in retrospect, as with the Sedition Act, that we realize what a mistake it was. There was a case recently um, in Connecticut where I live where, you know, we've been talking a lot about the Confederate flag in the wake of that horrible shooting down in South Carolina. Uh, a man went to in in in, in uh, Connecticut went to a flea market and saw um, Confederate memorabilia and Nazi memorabilia on display at a flea market. And instead of uh, 
of uh, criticizing instead of asking the guy to stop selling them, instead of organizing a protest, he called the police. And the police showed up and investigated the case. And I think, it, to me, it was a small but really telling uh, instance where, of, of why we have to so be on guard of letting our passions, even when they're governed by understandable emotions, rule us and, and cause us to repeat the mistakes of, of, of coming down on, on free speech. We are out of time. We've been speaking with Charles Slack. He is the author of this fascinating book, Liberty's First Crisis, Adams, Jefferson, and the Misfits Who Saved Free Speech. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.